0: to disobey God, things in our world are not the way they're supposed to be. All of creation is groaning under the curse that extends to everything and everyone. We see suffering all around us, and stories in the news are replete with horrible things that happen to people, things that are really hard to see and even harder to experience. We know that the crushing weight of suffering can be very difficult to bear, oftentimes driving people to depression and despair. And all through history, we see examples of the sufferings of life leading people to just check out and give up, either seeking to live life numb to what's happening, or even worse, to commit suicide. Like the popular English comedian and actor in the 50s and 60s, Tony Hancock, whose final words before he ended his life were, things just seem to go too wrong too many times. I invite you this morning to open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. About a year ago, I began preaching through Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church as I have opportunities throughout the year. I love 2 Corinthians. And since it was January when I last preached from this letter, it will be fruitful to briefly remind ourselves of both the historical and textual context of our passage for this morning. Paul started the, Corinth, the church in Corinth, but it had major problems. Through a series of letters and visits, he realized that there were people in the Corinthian church who strongly opposed him. And the main issue, that the, and the main issue was that they were embracing false teachers Guys that were called super apostles. These were flashy. They were charismatic men, and they had gained significant influence in the church there. The Corinthians had, the Corinthians had come to believe that these impressive guys were the real deal. And the Apostle Paul? Uh, not so much. So Paul wrote them this letter, primarily to defend his ministry. Arguing why indeed it was legitimate. Well, in chapter 3, Paul states that God has made him a minister of the new covenant, which is even more amazing and more glorious than the old covenant. And then at the start of chapter 4, he points out how, unlike the false apostles the Corinthians were following, he was preaching the new covenant message with integrity. And through his new covenant message, God was shining the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into dark and blind hearts. So starting then in verse 7 of chapter 4, Paul continues to defend his ministry as he responds to the confusion and complaints the Corinthians had with his life of suffering. After hearing and reading what he's writing in chapter 3, they perhaps couldn't help but wonder, how does this unsurpassed glory of the ministry of the Spirit harmonize with unrelenting death? And Paul, if your message is so precious, why is it displayed in such a weak and unimpressive person like yourself? The Corinthians thought that Paul's suffering discredited his ministry. But Paul's response to them here reveals how, in reality, his suffering actually validates his ministry. Follow along then as I read chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the unsurpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal father as we come now to consider your word we pray we pray that your spirit would help us to see and accomplish your purposes from this text in all of our hearts according to your will. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Now, maybe a temptation for us as we come away from this passage to think that this is really only about Paul and his ministry. After all, he was the apostle. God called to take the gospel to the Gentiles, so of course he was going to suffer. It is true that apostolic ministry was unique, but if you are a Christian here this morning, you too are a minister of the new covenant. And although none of us have ever been beaten, stoned, thrown in prison, or shipwrecked like Paul was, Scripture makes it very clear that every single one of us will suffer. Just consider four reminders from God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts 14.22, Jesus said that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. John 16.33, Jesus told his disciples, you will have suffering in this world And Paul writes in Romans 8, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You are not an apostle, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you will suffer with Him. And I think it's important here to, just to consider a teaching that perhaps you've heard in your life. Perhaps you've seen it. It's really, really popular all around the world. And that is the teaching of a prosperity or a health and wealth gospel which says that following Christ will lead to a life of prosperity, free of sickness and suffering. People who teach that have absolutely no way of understanding Paul's experience here. That teaching is a hellish mockery of Christianity. And it is actually so far from true Christianity that it's opposed to Christianity. We may easily decry that teaching, and we should, false teaching, But yet at the same time, expect that circumstances really should go well for godly followers of Jesus. Anything less than a peaceful family, a middle class lifestyle, and health, at least most of the time, leads to disappointment with God. But we must remind ourselves that God never promises the avoidance of pain, but grace through pain. And his word over and over confirms that following Jesus Christ requires us to take up our cross. We don't all suffer in the same way and to the same degree, but we all suffer. Whether it's a chronic illness or pain, a disease that cannot be cured, the loss of a loved one, singleness, an unbelieving spouse... Infertility, an unsaved or rebellious child, rejection or betrayal of friends, unemployment, a job that you just don't like, or anything else that you would change if you could. All of us suffer. I don't know much at all about the life of Tony Hancock, but I'm pretty sure that more things went more wrong, more of the time for the Apostle Paul than they did for him. Yet we see that as Paul suffered, he didn't lose heart. He didn't despair. He wasn't defeated. Paul did not give up. He remained courageous and bold. He endured to the end. And by God's grace, so can we. So can we. And this text shows us how So let's consider this morning how we can endure suffering. And there's three three ways here. The first is to rely on God's power. The second is to focus on Christ's work. And the third is to trust in unseen realities. First, let's consider that we endure suffering by relying on God's power. We see this in verses 7 through 9. Paul talks here about a treasure that we have. And the we here is it's an apostolic we. He's just speaking as a representative of the apostles. But he says this treasure that he contains, he possesses in a clay pot. The treasure is the light. The treasure is what he talks about in verses 1 through 6. It's the light revealed by the gospel, and it's contained in jars of clay or earthen vessels. Paul is saying that he was a clay pot. And if God has shown the light of the gospel into your heart, so are you. The image of the clay pot here implies at least three things. First is weakness. Clay pots were ordinary, everyday utensils. They were easily chipped, they were easily cracked, they broke all the time. It implies lowliness. These vessels were not pretty, they were not things of beauty. Cheapness would disguise the fact that they contained anything valuable at all. And the only importance came through what they contained, through what was inside. They were expendable. There was no enduring value. They were so cheap that when they broke, no one even bothered to try to mend them. Easily broken, easily replaced. Perhaps our modern equivalent would be a fast food container. Essential, but just really cheap, weak, Expendable, not that important. So why did God put divine treasure in an earthen pot like you and me? We see here, why, don't we? To show that the treasure has nothing to do with the pot. That the power in the message of the gospel has nothing to do with us. And In verses 8 and 9, Paul then gives four parallel paradoxes that illustrate illustrate this in his own life. And there are experiences that touch on the life of every genuine follower of Christ. He says, We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. All the incredible suffering that Paul experienced didn't destroy him. And it wasn't because he was a really strong man who conjured up the inner resolve to overcome adversity like what we see in all the inspiring Hallmark movies. It wasn't because he figured out how to become indifferent and numb and immune to his suffering and thereby be able to function without being affected by it. No, no. Paul's sufferings didn't destroy him Because God's power was at work within him. I wonder this morning do you sense your weakness? Do you you sense your weakness? If you do, be encouraged. Be encouraged, rather than wishing you were some sort of beautiful and expensive urn, be encouraged that in God's wisdom you are a clay pot. Because it is only in weakness that God's power is displayed. And in some sense, your weakness actually serves as the grounds for divine power. In chapter 12 of this letter, Paul says that three times he asked God to remove what was most likely some form of physical suffering. And God told him, No, my grace is enough for you to endure. And actually, my power is made perfect in your weakness. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And in the hours that followed, God displayed his power over sin and death through weakness as Jesus died on the cross. So one of the purposes God has in our suffering is that we would come to know and experience more and more of His sustaining power. So if we're to endure suffering, first of all, we must rely on God's power. Second, we must focus on Christ's work. We must focus on Christ's work. We see this through verses 10 through 15. As Paul deepens his point he instructs the Corinthians that his experience of power through weakness was in effect like that of Jesus in his life, death and resurrection. So if we're to endure suffering and we rely on this power, we must focus on Christ. We must focus on Christ in our suffering. First of all, as we identify with his death. As we identify with his death, you see that here, Paul mentions it three times. Verse 10 always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Verse 11, we're given over to death for Jesus' sake. And then again in verse 12, death is at work in us. The word translated death in verse 10 can refer to either the process of dying or the final condition of death. But regardless, the idea here is, as one commentator has said, that one who observed Paul's life as a Christian apostle would see constantly repeated a process analogous to the killing of Jesus. Paul carried about in his body the dying of Jesus, and he said in Galatians 6, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. His followers of Christ, we share in his death, We have died with Him. And so as we suffer, we are identifying with our crucified Lord. And as we do, as we identify with Christ, we experience the life of Christ and we display the life of Christ to others. It is through the death of Jesus that we experience true life. After each of his three references to identifying with Christ's death here in 10, 11, and 12, Paul immediately gives us the purpose or the result of that identification. And that was the experience and display of Christ's life. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested. Death's at work in us, but life is at work in you. So instead of being an apparent contradiction to the promise of life proclaimed in the gospel, death here is found to be a means by which Paul identifies with Jesus in suffering and so makes manifest the new life, which was a consequence of Christ's death. So death and misery are not boundless. Life prevails, but it's Jesus' life, which Paul experiences as he finds confident hope in the resurrection. That's what he's speaking of here in verses 13 and 14. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe, we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul here is referencing Psalm 116 verse 10 from the chapter that Mason read this morning. And he's comparing his own situation in which his faith inspires his bold speech, despite his suffering, to that of the psalmist. The profound character of his life as an apostle is not new. Paul stands in the long line of suffering righteous from the past. And just as the psalmist believed God would deliver him, Paul believes that since God raised Jesus from the dead, he will also raise him from the dead. It is because Paul believes in a future resurrection of the dead that he is presently willing to carry about in his body the dying of Jesus. It is because he looks forward to a heavenly life that he is willing to die daily. It's because he anticipates reigning with Christ in the future that he can speak so boldly in the present without faith in a future resurrection, Paul's present suffering would not only be intolerable, but also meaningless. He would, on his own admission, be a man most to be pitied. I wonder this morning, are you focusing on the work of Christ? Has there ever been a time when you have personally identified with the death and life of Christ? Scriptures make it very clear that we are all born into sin. Because of that, we're spiritually dead. We're separated from God. Therefore, we all face His just and perfect wrath, which is deserved because of our rebellion against Him. But God is full of mercy grace, and love. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect and sinless life that we could never live, and to die the death that we deserved. God poured out his wrath for sin on Jesus. He was crucified on the cross as our substitute, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, God raised him from the dead. And because Jesus lives, we too can be raised to live with him forever in God's presence. So so this life here that Paul talks about, this hope of resurrection, it can be yours. Through repentance of your sin, through trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, you too will identify with the death of Jesus. Experience his life. And know the true meaning and purpose of your suffering, like Paul, and have the divine strength to endure it. If you have questions about that message, if you would like to know more about what it means to identify with Christ's death and resurrection, please talk to us. Please let us know. We would love to continue to point you to Christ. As the Lord wills. Brother and sister in Christ, can you see here how much we need to focus on Jesus crucified and risen? As Keller has summarized so well, the gospel message isn't just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A2Z of Christianity. It's not the first step in a stairwell of truths, it is the hub in a wheel of truth. So in our suffering, we must focus on Christ's work, daily identifying with his death and hoping in his resurrection. And as we do, we will find God's power to endure, but we will also display the life of Christ to others. Notice how Paul's identification with the death of Jesus was so that others would see the life of Jesus in him. He tells us that three times. That was the purpose. Everyone could see Paul's physical frailty, which the persecution and suffering only magnified. But Paul carried about the death of Jesus for the purpose of disclosing his resurrection life in order that others might be saved. We see this very pointedly in verse 15. It is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. All of Paul's sufferings was for the sake of the Corinthian church. And as the grace of Christ displayed in Paul's suffering was seen and experienced in others, it led to thanksgiving, which resulted in glory to God. Where there's no suffering, there's no need for grace. And where there's no grace, if others don't see that grace, they're missing an occasion to thank God and therefore to give Him glory. See, none of us suffer in a corner. We don't. We, be assured that other people are watching you suffer. So as they do, as others watch you suffer, what do they see? Like Paul We're called to mirror Jesus, and there are aspects of his life that are best reflected through our suffering. So even though we don't like it and may not really want to talk about it much, we've got to see our suffering as an opportunity to display the life of Jesus and to declare to others that he is king of our broken world. John Eves, a pastor who died from cancer in 2004, understood this very well. And in a sermon three months before he died, he said this. In our weakest moments, God moves towards us and asks us to extend ourselves to others. Contrary to popular belief, God does not place us on the sideline of life when we walk through hardship. Rather, he takes us to the center of the playing field so that the world can watch and observe his faithfulness in our lives. Do you desire for God to be glorified in your suffering? I I think we all do. We all want that. Well, this is how it happens we display the power of God at work in us through the death and life of Christ. And that leads to gratitude in the hearts of others. And God gets the glory. There are times, for all of us, all of us at times flounder in the midst of our suffering. We, we, We can so often become discouraged and become infected with the spirit of complaint. And what we need in those times, how much do we need to be reminded that the power of God works. It really works, not just in theory, but in reality. We need to see it on display in someone's life. Robert was 17, and he'd been watching his father die an inch at a time over a period of three years. His dad sat in the same chair day after day and read the Bible with a large magnifying glass. He could not work. There was no income, no disability insurance. He sat there watching his life savings trickle away with his own life. And Robert never once heard him complain or protest. One day, Robert was sitting with his dad on their living room sofa. His body had been ravaged by three strokes. One side of his face was distorted by paralysis. His left eye and left, dro- left lip drooped uncontrollably. And he spoke to Robert with a heavy slur. His final words were difficult to understand, but their meaning was crystal clear. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Upon hearing those words, Robert replied, Dad, Dad, don't don't say that. Hours later, he suffered his fourth cerebral hemorrhage, and a day and a half later, he died. Fifty-three years later, Robert said that he will never forget his dad's final words, and he considers his response to be the most shameful words that he has ever spoke. When his father died, R.C. Sproul was not a Christian. But reflecting on that moment, He says this. His eloquent testimony was wasted on me at that time, but not now. Now I understand. Now I want to persevere as he persevered. I want to run the race and finish the course as he did before me. I have no desire to suffer as he suffered. But I want to keep the faith as he kept it. If my father taught me anything, he taught me how to die. And I am so thankful. I am so thankful for so many of you. I see your faces now. So many of you who are currently displaying Christ in your suffering. Through various trials and in different ways, you are showing me, you're showing our church, that God's power is real, that Jesus is enough, that he's more precious than the things of this world, your own desires and even life itself. So as suffering cracks our clay pots, which are held together by divine adhesive, as the cracks appear, may we allow the light of the life of Jesus to shine through for others to see. Oh, how our children, how our teens, how all of us need to see the treasure inside of us. How can we endure suffering? By relying on God's power, focusing on Christ's work. And then finally, by trusting in unseen realities. Trusting in unseen realities. Paul says in verse 16, we don't lose heart, we endure. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In all of Paul's suffering, in all that he went through, he doesn't lose heart. He endures because he really believes. He really believes. In fact, he trusts in two unseen realities. He trusts in inner renewal and future glory. The outer self, he refers to here in verse 16, certainly includes the body, the clay pot, earthly life, the stuff that people see, and Paul says that it's wasting away. I'm pretty sure that most of you who are over about 40 can give specific evidence That your body is breaking down and not working quite like it used to. Children? Teens? Your bodies are probably working pretty good right now, aren't they? And perhaps from time to time you talk with your friends about the body that you want to have. But you can be sure that the day is coming when you're going to talk to your friends about the body you used to have. I know it's hard to believe now, but trust me, that day is coming. It's coming faster and sooner than you can ever imagine. Guys, teen boys, you may from time to time at least think a little bit about your hair. Maybe you put some time and effort into making it look a certain way, there's a possibility. There's a possibility that the day is coming when it'll be gone. And if that happens, trust me, it's okay. It'll be just fine. It's not just our bodies, but our relationships, our skills. And everything in this world that we can see is all like a wave on the sand. You can't pin it down. It starts to recede from you. The outer man is steadily, irreversibly falling apart. But instead of destroying Paul, his outward sufferings are the very instruments God uses to reveal the glory of his presence and power in Paul's inner life. As his outer self was wasting away, his inner self was being renewed day by day. He was being renewed in the image of God. God was shaping and molding and making him more and more into what he was created to be. Renewing him in his image, making him more like Christ. How is our inner man being renewed? How is Paul's inner man being renewed? There's reasons right here in our text through God's power at work to sustain us in our suffering and our weakness, we're renewed through that. Through identifying with Christ's death, through sharing in the fellowship of His suffering, through the assurance of resurrection with Jesus, through the life flowing from our suffering into the church as we display the life of Jesus, and through focusing on unseen realities in all of these ways, through all of these means, God is renewing our inner man. So trusting in the unseen reality that our inner man is being renewed will give us hope and it will help us endure in our suffering. The second unseen reality that helps us endure in our suffering is future glory. It's future glory. Paul here describes his suffering as light and momentary And he says it is preparing an eternal weight of glory that can't even be compared to the trials of this life. And the key here in what Paul is saying, the key we've got to grasp is comparison. So often our comparisons, we have them, but so often they fall short. Yeah, I know, it could be a lot worse. Comparison with possibilities. Or at least I got it better than a lot of other people. Comparison with others. I still have it a lot better than I deserve. Comparison with merit. Or at least it's not as bad as it used to be. A comparison with the past. These comparisons are natural. And they may even be helpful. But the comparison we must have in our suffering is present suffering with future glory. Paul says here as he compares that his suffering is momentary. It doesn't mean it lasts 60 seconds or even a week or a year. It means it only lasts a lifetime, which is momentary when compared with trillions and trillions and trillions of years. Paul says his suffering is light. Oh, it doesn't mean it's easy or painless. Take a look sometime today at the list of Paul's specific sufferings in chapter 11, there is nothing easy or painless about them. He means that compared to what is coming, his suffering is as nothing. So compared to the weight of glory that is coming, his suffering is like feathers on the scale. As he said in Romans 8, 18, I consider the sufferings Of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. And note here that Paul's light and momentary suffering didn't just precede his future glory, it actually helped to produce the glory. Not one moment of his pain was wasted. One author significantly points out that the gospel doesn't accept suffering. The gospel doesn't avoid suffering. The gospel doesn't embrace suffering. The gospel engulfs suffering. Because the suffering we experience now will one day be the servant of our joy. The glory that awaits doesn't just compensate for our suffering, it undoes it. In the final chapter of what I think is probably the best book on suffering I've read up to this point in my life, When God Weeps, Johnny Erickson Tata describes a bit of what our experience in heaven will be finally free from sin and free from suffering. And then she paints us this picture. She says, Finally, you step forward onto heaven's courts. You drop to your knees to express thanks and gratitude. The man of sorrows walks from his throne and approaches you. He has absolutely no doubt of your appreciation, for he knows what you suffered. He reaches toward you with his nail-scarred hands, And when you feel your hands in his, you're not embarrassed. Your own scars, your anguish, all those times you felt rejection and pain have given you at least a tiny taste of what the Savior endured to purchase your redemption. Your suffering, like nothing else, has prepared you to meet God. For what proof could you have brought of your love if this life left you totally unscarred? you have something eternally precious in common with Christ. Suffering. But to your amazement, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering has faded like a half-forgotten dream. Now it is a fellowship of sharing in his joy and pleasure. Pleasure made much more wonderful by suffering. Oh, the pain of earth, you half sigh. Then you smile, rising to your feet to live the life God has been preparing for you all along. Weeping may have endured for a night, but it is morning, and joy has come. I think it is safe to say that we all spend more time looking at our suffering than we do looking at the glory. Of our reward. But if we are to endure and not lose heart in our suffering, the future glory that awaits must feel weightier to us than the burden of our problems. I mean, let's admit it. We don't long for heaven as our great reward, do we? Our rewards are donuts, vacations, grandkids, the Minnesota Wild and lots of other things in this world that consume our affections. But all of these things will in one way or another disappoint. And none of them, none of them will last. We have a much, 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 much better reward than anything this world offers. This future focus of our faith is so crucial because what we expect and long for in the future is going to determine how we live in the present summarizing hafman hope and its desire are the engines that drive us only the eternal glory can outweigh the burdens of this world made for god's presence we are a future determined people and in order to endure suffering now We must be captivated by the world to come. You're not going to find this message on TV, right? Our culture tells us in so many ways that what we can see is all that matters. But as followers of Christ called to suffer, we must Trust in unseen realities if we are to endure. So, how are you responding to suffering in your life? Are you discouraged? Are you losing heart? Well, like Paul, like Paul, you can endure. In fact, you must endure. And in all of our suffering, may God grant us the grace to rely on His power, to focus on the work of Christ, and to trust in unseen realities. Father, thank You so much for shining the light of the gospel of Christ into our hearts. We are clay pots, and you've given us the treasure. Father, as our clay pots are beat up, as we experience the sufferings of this life, grant us the grace to sense your power. Thank you for sustaining us with your power. Father, turn our eyes to Christ. May we see in his suffering The meaning of our suffering. May we identify with his death and may we find in Christ our life and help us to to willingly and freely display and share that life with others. Father, give us the faith to see that which we can't see. We know that's what faith is, but God, you've got to do this work. we believe naturally in what is right in front of us. So help us to believe that you are indeed changing us and making us more and more into Christ. Thank you for doing that through our suffering. You're a good father. You don't withhold anything good. We know you love us as we experience pain. Thank you for keeping all of our tears in a bottle And thank you that one day they will produce future glory that we cannot even understand now. Turn our eyes there. Father, help us to find comfort as we look to Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. May we be encouraged with what awaits as we experience our light and momentary suffering. Father, do this work in us. Do this work in us to glorify yourself, we pray. It's in Christ we ask all these things. Amen.